Welcome to Adoption Conversations, a safe place to talk everything adoption. My name is Paola and I'm a mother of two through adoption and birth. In this podcast, I'm hoping to collect several experiences of people who got in touch with this world, spread useful information and raise awareness about all sides of adoption. Welcome to Adoption Conversations. I am Paola, your host, and this is episode six. And today we have a very special guest, Bridget from US, New York State, who uh, has a story as a birth mom to share. So welcome, Bridget. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, And it's great to have you here. I'm really grateful that you accepted. So would you like to briefly introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes. Hi, my name is Bridget. I'm 58 years old. And at the age of 18, I placed a newborn baby girl for adoption. All right. Uh, Would you like to tell a little bit more about your story as a birth mom? Yes. Um, In 1978, obviously, I found myself pregnant and alone. And... um, unable to parent a child. I was from a very a household. My home was in very much turmoil at the time, so there was no support from home. And I did not want to be a single mom on welfare. I did not want my child raised that way. So after long consideration and some coercing from my parent and caseworker, I decided to place my daughter for adoption. And in New York State, at that time, there was no option other than a closed, sealed adoption. Open adoptions were unheard of. So when I signed the papers, everything was sealed, and I was to never be able to look at those papers again. Wow, that's, that must have been really, really hard. Yes, it was extremely hard. It was one of the most difficult decisions I've ever made. Um, As I, when I left the hospital after I had her, I left her there. And per New York State, the child stayed in the hospital, I think it was five days extra as they ran extra tests and stuff to make sure the child was healthy and normal, had no diseases or anything that, so they could give the adoptive family a good, healthy baby. After I was home for a couple of days, I talked my father into letting me bring the baby home. So on day three, I went back. Well, it would have been day five. I went back and got my baby girl and brought her home. And one thing that has always stuck with me is the pediatrician come in and talking to me. And one of his last words were, she's cute, she's cuddly, but she will grow. And this is for lifetime. This isn't just for right now. So I just put his words aside and said, no, no, I'm taking her home. Well, I took her home. And... After two nights of listening to my parents scream and argue and going through a lot, I realized that I could not raise her 
in this household, and I could not raise her as a single mother on welfare. I wanted more for her. So I woke up, I got up on a Saturday morning after two nights of, and two days of not a good atmosphere and hollering and fighting, and I called the caseworker and told her to come get the baby. So two hours later, the caseworker was at my door. I took my baby girl upstairs and held her and kissed her and loved on her. The last thing I said to her was, I don't know how, I don't know when they will be together again. And I kissed her on the forehead, and then I placed her in the caseworker's arms, and I watched the caseworker walk out the door with my baby in her arms, put her in the car, and drove away. And that was my goodbye. So you didn't even get to know which family adopted her? No, no. I knew nothing. I'll, they asked me a couple questions. Like, I had to name um, where I had family member in the area living. Like, if I had an aunt in, you know, Augensburg, if I had a grandmother in Lisbon, New York, um, I had to name all the places where I had family members living in the county that I live in. If they lived outside the county, it was fine because they tried to keep the baby in the same county that they're playing. And the counties, I mean, the towns, and that was the only questions. Um, once we were reconnected, her mom told me that the only information they got was that um, diabetes ran in the family. Other than that, they have, she had no information either. I see. And what happened after that? What happened with your life? Um, I was pretty lucky with my life. Uh, I think a lot of it I buried and didn't think about it and didn't deal with it. And within weeks of after placing her, I met the most terrific man I was still, you know, we were young. It was in 1978. I was 18. He was 23 at the time. And for us, it was instant. It was instant love. We ended up <laughs> only knowing each other for a couple months and marrying. And um, this year we'll celebrate 40 years <laughs> of marriage. Wow, a very happy, A very happy marriage. And... Um, Within six months of marrying, I got pregnant. And I never really, and I love my children. We have two children together, my husband and I. But in the last couple of years, being more vocal and talking about my story, I finally have realized that I think I had my son so soon after. So it was kind of like a replacement mm -hmm. for the baby that I placed. Um, I was overly protective of him. I would not even let my husband discipline him half the time. If he did something wrong, sometimes I wouldn't tell my husband so he wouldn't get disciplined. But I truly think that I had the baby so fast so that I wouldn't think about my daughter that I placed, that I had a baby. 
And I realize now that that wasn't the right thing. I'm, you know, I'm glad I had my son and everything, but I never dealt with the emotions until just a few years ago. And by the t- that time, it was hard, and it put me into a long and deep depression. And um, I have just recently, just past summer, finally come out of 24 months of severe depression. So um, I think I buried everything. Didn't want to think about it. I didn't talk about it. I had family members that knew nothing about it. When I, the search angel found my daughter, uh, she was 34, almost 35 when we found her. I had family members that were just floored. They had no idea whatsoever that I had ever had a baby in place. Um, I kind of was kept at home a lot during my pregnancy. I It would have been my senior year in high school, but I had gone to summer school and filled my requirements to, to graduate so I didn't have to go to a, a senior year at school. But um, I didn't go out in public a lot. And if I did, you know, it, most of my pregnancy was during the winter, so everything was covered up with big coats. And I can remember going to a baby shower one time with my mother, and I couldn't, wasn't allowed to take my coat off until I sat down and could hide stuff under the table. And um, I went to stand up to go to the bathroom, and my mother stopped me. She said, you sit right here. So it was kind of kept quiet and hush-hush. Mm-hmm. And, and do you think it was more about shame or about protecting you? Oh, no, I think it was about shame 100%. It wasn't protecting me. It was protecting my family. Um, as I said, I was 18 at the time. I Well, 17 when I got pregnant, and I was still on my father's health insurance through his work and he wouldn't even let us put it through his health insurance as he didn't want nobody to know that so um my mother took me to social services probably in about my fifth month sixth month because i didn't tell them finally my dad had figured it out quite early but my mom wouldn't believe them. And finally, at about four and a half to five months, they come right out and ask me. And I said, yes, I am carrying a child. And when, of course, which was not a good thing. <laughs> and so at about six months, my mother took me to social services to try to get some help because my father would not allow me to be, this to be recorded onto his health insurance and I went to social services with my mother, and that's when the word adoption came up, which my mother immediately jumped on. And so they set an appointment for me to go talk to a caseworker. And caseworkers are very persuasive. Back in those days, they used guilt. They used shame. You can't give this baby ever. Think, you know, how are you going to feel having to raise a baby on welfare, which at the time was a big stigmatism in our country? You know, welfare, people were to be looked down on, you know, 
lazy, no good layabouts or teen moms that got themselves in trouble. So, um, we just decided, you know, we'll, we'll keep this as an option. And the caseworker would call me or come see me at least once a month and kept it open. And, um, I really did want her, but they work you. My dad worked me. My mother ended up having a nervous breakdown during my pregnancy and went into a mental institution for, um, I think it was like 40 days. So that was 40 days into my pregnancy, deep into my pregnancy, that I didn't have my mom to kind of help me. Because she would have gone along, I think, with me staying at home and raising the baby. But my father was adamant that I wasn't bringing a baby home. And um, so they just had the 40 days to keep working me. My dad at the time was not quite, my dad was an alcoholic, let's just put it that way. I was called names and treated rather roughly. So, um, like I said, I went to the hospital and had the baby and decided I was going to sign the papers, which in New York State is temporary. You sign for 30 days, and you have 30 days to change your mind. After the 30 days, you would, if you hadn't changed your mind, you go back and sign the permanent papers. Because in New York State at that time, the baby, once they left the hospital, went to a foster home for six weeks. They did not go directly to the adoptive family. They went to um, a foster home for the six weeks period. And so I'll never forget one thing that really hit me hard was the day the caseworker come in for me to sign the temporary papers. I had just gotten out of the shower and I was laying on top of the bed. It wasn't covered. You know, I was in a nightgown in a house in a bathrobe and she come in with the biggest smile all rosy and bright-eyed bushy tail good morning Bridget it's so good to see you and come to the bottom of my bed and my feet were uncovered and she started tickling my feet and that's something that has never left me it's like are you really tickling my feet <laughs> I mean this is a very serious moment this is a life-changing moment and you come in all smiles and giggly and tickle my feet you know and so she come in and put the papers down in front of me and explained them never had a parent there with me it was just me and her didn't have anybody to advocate on my side or truly go into depth with the papers meant she skimmed so I signed the temporary papers, and she said thank you, walked out the door, and a couple minutes later, the nurse brought the baby in so I could say goodbye, and I was holding her and getting and saying my goodbyes, and my sister, who was my only support all the way through my pregnancy, who went to my doctor's appointment, who went to my natural childbirth classes with me. Only the baby came early, so we only got two classes in. And at that time, they didn't let anybody into the delivery room, but she was able to stand outside the delivery room in a little window so I could see her face. 
and um, I was holding the baby, and she came to the door. At that time, other people weren't allowed around the babies, and the nurse came and bundled the baby so her face wasn't visible or anything, and took her and walked out and told me I was ready to leave to get dressed. And um, the one thing, too, is when the baby was in the nursery, back then they were in the nursery most of the time. You got a couple hours in the morning, a couple hours in the afternoon, and a couple hours in the evening to hold the baby. All the other times they were in the nursery. When she was in the nursery, she was in an isolated room by herself where nobody could see her. Um, if my, my they would have to come to me and get permission for my family to look at the baby. My family was never allowed to touch or hold or anything, but they would bring her to a window where no other babies were, and they could look through the glass and see her. So um, when it was time for me to leave, I got dressed, and they put me in the wheelchair and wheeled me by the nursery, and all the nursery curtains were closed. To me, it was like, almost like a shroud that they pulled over because she was dead. She was gone. And I was wheeled out and went home and laid on the couch and cried and cried for quite a long time. <laughs> and um, was told, it's going to be okay. You'll forget all about it. Just come on. You're going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. She's going to have the family that she needs. And just forget about it. Get on with your life. And then, like I said earlier in the broadcast, I begged and begged. And finally, my father relented. And I went and got her and had the discussion with a pediatrician, which really stuck with me. And spent two, 48 hours listening to my parents just fighting about it and fighting about it. My mother saying, you know, I'm not going to do this. I'll go back to the state hospital or the mental hospital. And so I just knew. And the pediatrician's words kept running over and over my mind. You know, she deserves a good family. She deserves a good life. She doesn't deserve to be raised on welfare. So I got up the next that Saturday morning and just said to my parents, Mom, call the social worker, have her come and get Danielle. So two hours later, Danielle was packed off into a car and gone out of my life. One thing um, I would like to ask you is um, you took that the social services were assisting with this process. And I would like to understand, uh, in, in your view, did they really give you a choice or was it sort of them pressuring you to, to give up for adoption, Danielle? Oh, it was them pressuring every month. It was told, you know, you're too young. You have your whole life. Do you want to be tied down as a single mother? You know, there, you can have college. You can travel. You know, there's, you're, you're shutting off all your opportunities to the future. It was constant every single month when we would meet, you know, do you want to raise a baby on welfare? Do you want to be a single mother stuck in a crappy apartment, you know, just barely surviving month to month on what you will be allowed? And then also they would told 
told me and my parents, because I was only 18, my parents were still legally responsible for me financially until I was 21. So the only help I would be getting would be for the baby alone. There would be no help for me. There would be no help to help me rent a place. There would be no help for me to put food in my place. I would receive, which at the time would have been a very small stipend because she was just a baby and didn't need a lot. So there was no financial help for me, only for the baby. And that was reiterated every single time. How are you going to survive with, you know, a little bit of money to buy diapers, enough money to buy diapers and formula? And that was basically what I would have been getting. There was no um, compassion whatsoever. They wanted the baby. They wanted me to sign, period. Yeah, I, I was afraid you were going to say that. Yeah. That's, that's really not how the social services should work at all. And do you, I know that you are uh, quite active in advocating for adoptees and birth mothers. So I want to ask you, in your perception, this, did this change? Is it different now? Are social services really offering support or are they pressuring birth mothers in a direction? I don't think anything has changed. I think it's the same. There's no pre-counseling for birth mothers. There's no after support whatsoever. In fact, I am right now in the process of putting together a support group, a knee-to-knee Support groups online are wonderful. I have a couple that I'm in that I can go to and I can talk and or help another birth mother, which from what I'm told, I'm very good at. But there's no personal sit down, knee to knee for support within over 200 miles of me where you can sit in a room with somebody that walks the same path as you do. And social services doesn't care. If you want aftercare support, that's on you. You're going to have to find your own support. You're going to have to pay for your own. Choose to have therapy. There is nothing. There's no support before. There's no support afterwards. You're signing the papers and we're done with you. And that is still the attitude today. In fact, I had called social services um, after my search angel found my daughter and requested, can we get our records? And they were more upset that I had found my daughter than anything else. They didn't want to hear about no records. They wanted to know how did I find my daughter? Who helped me? They wanted names and stuff. And I'm like, oh, I'm not giving you any information. I ended up hanging up the phone on them after they threatened me because it was. It, find my daughter. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry. And we still cannot. Even we're both 
Oh no, I take that back. My daughter is not. My daughter um isn't into advocacy and stuff the way I am. To her, I'm adopted. I found my mother. Oh wow, you know, my mother found me. That's life. She doesn't. She. I mean, we have a a good relationship, and she only lives 45 minutes from me. We see each other frequently, but she doesn't care about any of the other stuff. All she knows is she has me back now, and she's good with that. She doesn't want to know her story. She doesn't want to know her history. And I'm in New York State. There's a registry. You can register when the child that you placed is 18. And if she registers, then they would give you some non-identifying information. Like she wouldn't get my name, but she would get unidentifying. Oh, no, wait, I backtracked. She would get my name. Uh-huh. And that's one way you could connect. But she never knew that. Her adoptive parents, well, I should say her mother, because her father walked out when she was three, um, never knew that, never knew there was a registry, even though she worked in social services, but she didn't work in the adoption department. Nobody ever told her that. So if she registered now, we would be able to get her original birth certificate, I think. I'm not 100% sure on that. But she has no qualms. She doesn't want, you know, it's no big deal to her. So she isn't registered, which I wish she would, as I would like the records. But I, you know, that's her. She doesn't want to know any details. And that's okay if that's what she can live with. You know, if that's what puts her at ease with me and stuff, that's fine. But she does not know her full story. She knows bits and pieces of it. And, um, like, I've done interviews, TV interviews about the advocacy part that I'm very involved in. And I've asked her multiple times, you know, would you come and sit with me and do the TV interview? And she has no interest. So she doesn't come with me, you know, if they come to my home to do the interviews, done four to this day. And she's never once wanted to come and be part of it, which I'm, you know, that's her and that's completely fine. We all handle things in a different way, and she chooses her way, which I'm 100% behind, and I choose my way, which she supports. Um, at first, she wasn't know, didn't know she supported it, so I didn't use her name. I don't use her name a lot just to protect her own privacy, but... Um, Lately, she the last couple ones I've done, she's had no problem with me, you know, using her name and, you know, talking about my grandchildren with her. But, you know, she just deals with, you know, and we meet in the middle. That's that's great. I think that you you found both your your way to to deal with it and you're supporting each other with that. Yes. Um, actually, we really be jumped the part of your story where you found your daughter. Uh, could we like go back a little bit and like how did you manage to find your daughter? What happened? 
Oh, yes, because <laughs> um, years ago, oh, three years before I found my daughter, I was looking at a magazine. I think it was like a People magazine, something like that. And I come to the very back cover of the magazine, and there was an advertisement for a birth mother bracelet. And it just floored me. I had never seen anything like that. And that was before I shared my story. I didn't tell people, and I kept quiet and didn't tell the whole world my story. I just didn't talk about it. But this bracelet really caught my eye. It was a beautiful bracelet of brown quartz beads, and then it had a little gold leaf on it. And it was called the birth mother bracelet, and what it represented was the gold leaf represented the leaf that the birth mother puts on somebody's family tree when they place for adoption. And this organization, which is called helpusadopt.org, were the ones advertising this. And what they are, they're a nonprofit organization out of New York City They um, that raise money and four times a year um, they give grants to people in the process of adopting. You have to fill out an application, and you know applications get sent in, and then they go through the applications four times a year and pick, depending on the money available and stuff. But usually, pick like quite a few, maybe at least I'd say seven, eight families, mm-hmm. and um, they give them upwards of $15,000 to help pay for the cost of adoption because wow. adoption in the States runs about forty to $50,000 to adopt a child in the United States, out of state. I mean, out of country adoptions are a lot more. So it just really hit me that, wow, this bracelet is awesome. I want it. <laughs> so I ordered the bracelet. And there was an order form that you could cut out and send in. So I cut it out and sent it in. And for some reason, I don't know why, I added a little note and told just a little bit of my story. Not a lot, just that I, you know, placed a baby, you know, in the era, closed adoption and whatnot. And I received the bracelet in the mail. And a couple days later, in the evening, my phone rang, and I picked it up, and it was the founder of this organization, Becky. Becky is an unbelievable lady. She's a mother through adoption, times two. She has a boy and a girl. And we talked for at least 40 minutes. And at this time, it would have been, my daughter would have been about, 32 and hers was the first thank you that I ever received for placing a leaf on somebody's family tree and Becky and I haven't had an instant connection I mean we just she kind of was like the little angel that come down and sat on my shoulder and told me I was a good person wasn't a bad person. I didn't have nothing to be ashamed about. I did what I had to do, what was best for my daughter. And 
with Becky's guidance and stuff, I finally started opening up and talking about my adoption. In fact, I did Becky's first ever um, guest blog. She has a blog. It's called The Infertile Blonde. And I wrote a small blog, but, you know, I buttered it all up, fancied it up, put ribbons on it, made it look like it was a good, my choice, 100%, and everything was good. So Becky has a lot of fundraisers in New York City. You know, I mean, major fundraisers where a lot of money is raised. And it was at one of these fundraisers, a lady that she knows is a search angel. So Becky told her a little bit of my story and that how, you know, I really wanted to find my daughter. So um, Becky called me a couple days after the fundraiser and said, Bridget, I have a number for you. This lady's name is Susan, and I want you to give her a call. I'm like, what's this about Becky? And she said, she's a search angel. She helps find children that have been placed for adoption. I'm like, oh, okay. So it was a, we, we had um, email. I had emailed Susan and stuff, and Susan set up a Sunday to, for her to call me and information I did have and she would, you know, introduce herself to me and stuff. So that Sunday we she called me and I gave her what little information I had, where she was born, the date, how much she weighed, um, the days that I had signed paperwork and stuff. Because once to go off subject a little bit, once I bring her home and then gave her back, my mother they, my mother made me wait the 30-day wait. She left on a Sunday. That Monday we went to social services, and I signed the permanent adoption papers. So the 30 days was no longer an issue. It was waived, and it was gone, through, you know, seven days after she when she was seven or eight days old, I signed the permanent. So Susan and I talked, and I gave her what little information I had. And at the end of the conversation, she said, don't worry, Bridget, I'll find your daughter. I said, okay, you know, we ended the conversation. I'm thinking to myself, yeah, sure. You're not going to find her. I've tried. I can't find her. And so I checked, you know, called a couple times during the week with a couple more questions. I had to send her a copy of my driver's license. Oh, that was Sunday. That weekend, my sister, Joanne, who was my support during the pregnancy, and I had gone to visit my sister who lived about four hours, about four hours away. We used to go and spend the weekend with her every now and then. There's big age difference between me and my siblings. I was the baby. So we were on the main, a main throughway, driving home and pouring down rang where you could only drive about 45 minutes and my phone rang and it was Susan so I answered and hi Susan she said hi Bridget I have a couple questions for you and I said okay she said what county is Messina New York in I said St. Lawrence County I said it's about 40-45 minutes from where I live she said Howard North I said, that's a little little town by Messina. 
She said, Brazier Falls. I said, another little town by Messina. She said, Bridget, your daughter lives in Brazier Falls, which was 50 minutes from me. I just lost it. I'm crying and I'm trying to get out to my sister who is driving in a raging <laughs> rainstorm with vehicles flying by us at about 70 miles an hour. She found her. She found her. And my sister started. We ended up having to pull into the first exit we could find because we just were losing control. And she said, you know, calm down. It's okay. She was in Brazier. Um, I have sent, you know, message or, you know, she contacts her through Facebook. She Well, she sent messages through Facebook. And she said, but I'm not going to give you her name or where she lives because usually it's the search angel that does the contacting in case there's no contacted wanted. Um, so there I'm learning because I'm in the process of being, you know, starting to be a search angel. So usually it's the search angel that makes the initial call in case there's rejection so that it, she can break it and it's not so not a, such a major effect on you know the child that is searching or the parent that is searching. So she said, you know, I'll keep in contact and as soon as I hear from her, I'll let you know. And I said, okay. So we got home and I had called my husband and children, my adult children that my husband and I had. And he said, you know, they found her and everybody was excited. <laughs> Brazier Falls is a small little town. I live in a small little town. It was all I could do not to get in my car and drive the 50 minutes and start knocking on every door in the town. I'm like, are you my daughter? Are you my daughter? So um, the next day I was at work and it was about, it was like lunchtime and I had my phone in my back pocket and by mistake, I dialed Susan here it's probably nice to say on a podcast but here we call them button dials <laughs> and I think you can say <laughs> and I I mistake button dialed Susan and you know I heard her voice in my back pocket and I said oh Susan I'm so sorry I said I must have you know it was a mistake of a dial I didn't mean to call you I said but I said Susan have you heard anything yet because at this point it had been right around 24 hours. And she said, no, Bridget, I haven't. She's not answering any of my messages. And I said, oh, Susan, I'm you know, dying here. I need to know. And she said, well, I usually don't do this, but I'm going to send you. She said, I'm, are you by a computer? And I'm like, yeah. And I said, well, I, you know, I have my phone. And she said, okay, I'm going to send you some picture. I'll send you a picture. And then um, she said, I'm going to give you her name. So she sent me the picture, and it was a picture of her and I side by side. And it just floored me. It was 100% me. I mean, she looked so much like me. It was shocking. It's truly shocking. It's everybody tells me, oh, she's your mini you, and she's your twin. And... Um, so I looked and I read her profile and went through, you know, on Facebook what I could. And she, you know, still was no response or anything. 
So, and I had her telephone number. Susan said, Bridge, I think she works. And I said, okay. She said, but it looks like she might get done about three or so. And I said, okay. So I waited till about quarter after three and I dialed. I mean, before I had my, after I had my breakdown, I was just sobbing and couldn't breathe and going through a lot. I find my husband calmed me down and I dialed and there was no answer. So I waited like another half an hour and dialed again and she answered. And the first words out of my mouth were, please don't hang up. This is an important call. I'm not a telemarketer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so afraid she would hang up. And the next thing I said is, I don't know how to say this. There's no easy way to say this. So I'm just going to come out and say this. I think I'm your birth mother. And then I said, no, I know that I'm your birth mother. And her first words were not <laughs> what I expected. She should have said, shut the F up. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm serious. And then she just kind of lost it and was crying and was car- you know, like carrying on. And I could really hear, you know, what I had gone through when the, I was told. So and she wasn't believing because she had searched for years and had thought she had found her birth father and it didn't work out. So she was hysterical. And all I kept doing was repeating the hospital she was born in, the date she was born in, the time she was born, her weight. And I kept repeating it and repeating it and repeating it. And finally she calmed. She said, how did you find me for years? She said, I gave up. I said, I don't know how I found you. And she said, well, what do you mean? I said, a search angel found you. And one of the things that she told me is, my search angel told me, Bridget, I will never be able to tell you how I found her. But I found her. So I had no details how the search angel worked to find her. And at that point, I didn't care. She found her. So we talked on the phone for a couple minutes like half an hour and she said I need I just need to hang up and call my husband and I need to breathe because her husband works out of town and I said okay she said I'll call you back I said okay and this was on a Monday you know four four thirty so we hung up and a couple minutes later my phone rang and it was her husband a very suspicious husband (laughs) should I add and um he kept saying how did you find her How do you know you're her real birth mother? I said, I can't tell you how I found her because I don't know a search angel found her for me. I said, and I trust the search angel. And has she sent you the pictures of us side by side? He said, no. I said, well, you need to see the pictures, the side by side pictures of us. So he said, okay, let me hang up. And so he hung up. And just a few minutes later, called back and said, oh, my God, you're her mother. And I said, yes, I am. And um, the funny thing was, is she had the picture up on the computer looking at it. And one of her daughters, she has twin girls, um, at the time would have been like maybe 10 years old, walked by the computer. And her kids knew she was adopted. 
and walk by the computer and she's like, mommy, who is that lady? And why does she look just like you? <laughs> so <laughs> that's how much we looked like that a 10 year old could notice. And so, um, I said, can I come see you? She said, I said, can we meet? She said, yes. I said, you know, where do you live? I'll be there in an hour. She said, no, I don't want to meet at my house because of my children. Yeah. You know, I don't want to get my children involved just yet. I'm like, that's, you know, very understandable. Where can we meet? And um, we decided to meet in Canton, New York, which is a college town here, at a Pizza Hut parking lot in the West. <laughs> and, um, of course, I got there before she did. One thing I've learned since we've been reunited, Sherilyn is late for everything. <laughs> She's never, never, never on time. So my husband drove me there. And we waited, and probably about 10, 15 minutes later, a truck pulled in. I told, told her what we would be in and pulled up to us and next to us, and I said, oh, my God, that's her. And I was out of the car, but she was sitting in the truck. She wasn't getting out yet, and so I just stood at the end of my vehicle and, you know, waited, and finally... She is a cigarette smoker. I seen her put her cigarette out in the truck, and she got out and stood at the door of her truck, and I could see her take a deep breath, and then she walked around the side of the truck, and I said, hi, I'm Bridget. She said, hi, I'm Cheryl Lynn. And I said, can I hug you? And she said, yes, you can. <sighs> what a feeling. I wrapped my arms around her in the Pizza Hut parking lot. 35, 34 and a half years later for the first time. Um, at first, she didn't hug back. I hugged her and stepped back to give her a little breather. And we started talking a little bit. And then I just grabbed her again and was hugging her. I'm a huggy person. And um, finally, when I was hugging her, she had her arms crossed up against her chest as tight as she could. Like, she put up the wall. She was protecting herself. And finally, the second hug, I was hugging her. And finally, I felt her arms drop and wrap around me. <laughs> it's a feeling I'll never forget. It was the most wonderful feeling. And the whole time, my husband was taping it. So I have my first meeting with my daughter on tape. The very next morning, going to work in the car, Taylor Swift's song, Come On. What's the name of that song? Oh, I can't remember the name, but it was a Taylor Swift song that was like, you know, I waited all my life and I found you. It was exactly, it was just meant to be wrote. It was like she wrote it for us. It was that touching and that deep and it was our song and my husband as a gift put our video to that song and it's called The Reunion and um, we've just gone from there and then in October of 2015 I went into a deep depression and could not handle anything I went to work I come home and I slept and through those 24 months 22 months I kind of I shut her out I stopped talking to her I she would text me every now and then and I would 
quick right before you know we were seeing each other all the time and talking and going through emotions and but everything come and hit me like a brick all the memories all the stuff I went through while I was pregnant and it just really hit me and knocked me down for 22 months and when I finally come out of that 22 months in August and was me again she was there waiting for me she never gave up on me at times when I knew I was giving up on her which I promised her I would never let her go again and at the end of that depression, she was right there. She was standing there waiting for me. Her kids, which I completely understand, and her husband, not quite so much, but they're learning. I mean, it's only been since October of 17. We're now into February of 18, so it's only been, you know, a couple months. But two of her children are really back to I'm their ninny, that's what they call me, ninny, but one is really struggling with it, which I understand, and I've told her, you know, take your time, when you're ready, I'm going to be here, but I don't think she, I think she thinks, yeah, okay, ninny, you're here for how long, so I now need to prove that I'm here for good, I'm not going to back away again I've got control of my life and I'm not going to walk out I'm going to keep my promise to you I'm going to be here and that's where we are today oh <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's really hard to say something after all yes. this story but I, I'm, I'm I'm just I'm just so glad that she understood. And yeah, it, yes. it, it, it must have been... I, I understand how everything hit you 35 years later. And it's... it's I mean, she's been great. <laughs> uh, because she also yeah. probably had um, the big baggage. And anyway, she managed to understand understand yeah she does carry a lot of baggage you know she carries a lot of baggage and sometimes that comes out at me which is 100% understandable and you know I'm okay with that you know she has to let her emotions out and let me know that you know as a little girl she hurt as an adult she hurt you know, she sat on her bed on her birthdays and holidays and wondered, is she thinking about me? You know, which I always did. One of the nicest things I found out, um, her birth mother told me, her birth mother lives in Canada. No, she lived in the States, but she married a Canadian. That's how close we live to Canada <laughs> and lives in Canada. And um, we... Our birthday is kind of weird. Our birthdays are only four days apart. Her birth mother, I mean, excuse me, myself and her adopted mother's okay, birthdays yeah. are only four days apart. So we went, right after I found my daughter, I found her in October. That December, my husband and I and Cheryl and her husband went over to Cornwall, um, Canada, 
to meet her so I could meet her mom. We went over and had a nice supper together. And one of the nicest things that I found out during that visit was always on Sherilyn's birthday, they always said a special prayer for me, for God to look over me, to help me through what I had been through, and thanked me for making them a family. And that's one thing that I will never be able to thank her mother enough for. I received the reception from Sherilyn, the welcome, the full force love from Sherilyn because of her birth, because of her adoptive mother. Her mother instilled in her that everything I did, I did because I loved her so much and I wanted the best for her. She always made sure that Sherilyn knew, even though she didn't know her or not, that maybe I could have just been some buddy that, you know, didn't care and just get rid of this kid, you know. But she, she knew nothing about me, but still let Sherilyn know how much her birth mother loves her. And that's something that just floored me. You know, this lady knew nothing about me. But somehow she knew my heart. She knew what was inside, that I loved my girl. And I wanted her, but I wanted the best for her, and I couldn't give that to her. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> it's happening also on the other side, of it, I assure you. But uh, <laughs> um, I think... One comment I have about this is like, this sounds very, I mean, I guess 40 years back, it it was not so frequent for adoptive mothers also to be so open about adoption. And, and, and no, you didn't talk about it. Indeed. And also like... You kept your mouth. Uh, oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I just, no, I'm okay. I just said that, you know, you didn't talk about it. Like I said, you kept your mouth shut and you buried it and went on with your life and everything was rosy and sunny and you could have more kids and just forget about it. Indeed. So that, that was Not so really, easy. really a lucky match in a way. About, about this. Very, like, yeah. very. <laughs> Wow, and I, I think even I, I I think now at least from where I stand, this has changed, and we are much much more open about adoption. I I would dare say, at least in the communities I attend to, that it's it's weird if you are not open about adoption nowadays. If if you don't tell your your children they are adopted, uh, if they are. Uh, but at the same time, I feel there's a good lesson here for everybody about giving a special place in your family to, to birth mothers. Yeah, and I think in the States, um, it's a lot better. I don't think there's as very many closed adoptions anymore. But in the States, open adoption... I don't know about in your country, but at any point, 
even though you have an open adoption at any point, if you do something or something goes wrong that upsets the adoptive parents, they can cut off all contact. It's not a binding agreement. I mean, there's, it's not a law. If at any point in an open adoption that um, the adoptive parents don't want that contact anymore, they can shut the birth parents right out. No contact, no nothing. They can pick up and move to another country, move to another state. You know, they the contracts are not binding on that issue. I mean, I, through my support groups and stuff, I know quite a few birth mothers younger than me um, that have op that had open adoptions that all of a sudden they just, the birth parents decided to close and that was a, they no longer had contact. They no longer received the pictures. They no longer, you know, got the visit so many times a year that they had agreed on. And they have no recourse. There's nothing they can do about that. Is this, in your opinion, is it more of a um, legal gap that we still don't, have not filled? Yes. Yes. I think... If you sign a contract and you put that in the contract, that should be binding. Unless, you know, I do see other aspects where you might have to cut off contact. You know, if it's hurting the child, you know, then I definitely think that, you know, there should be, you know, cut off contact if the child is being negative, negative, you know what I'm trying to say, being affected by the contact, then, you know, whatever in an adoption, in my eyes, open, close, the child should always be first. And lots of times the child isn't put first. I'm finding lots of time, especially in my air, that the adoptive parents were put first. Not the child, not the birth mother, it was the adoptive parents. So that has changed greatly in our country. But in my eyes, it's the child always needs to come first. So I can, you know, see aspects where sometimes maybe it's best for the child to close the open adoption. You know, but I hope that they could have if the adoptive parents are feeling that there's going to be a need to close, that they could talk to the birth parents and say, hey, look, I don't like this aspect of your life. I don't want this aspect of your life to come into the child's life. So, you know, you need to either change this aspect of your life that we are not agreeing with, or we're going to have to stop the contact. At least give her, them, he or her, a chance to turn around. And then if contact has to be broken off, it's on the birth parent. It's not on the adoptive parent. It's not on the child. It's on the birth parent for not a hearing. But on the other hand, I don't want an adoptive parent telling me how to live their life. You know, I can see if there's drugs involved and stuff like that, but I don't want somebody else dictating how I have to run my life to see my child. 
but I can, if it's going to hurt the child, I definitely see that they should have that right. Yeah, I, I, I see it too, but uh, as you say, I, I also feel there's a legal gap. I, I'm not fully aware how things work here in Finland. I'm just aware that they are trying to, um, well, some, some organizations are trying to advocate more for open adoptions, so like to push it for more of, to be... Um, to be the format for domestic adoption more. Uh, but I, I think, so this is not exactly an educated guess, but I think there's a gap still also here. Um, the contract is not legally binding. And I think it would be nice if the social services would act as mediators in, uh, like maybe of like as the owners of the contract in a way so that if, if there is some conflict or uh, some doubts about the, if, if it's the arrangement is good or not, at least they could try to mediate them and see if, if, if it can be saved before it's just like a unilateral decision to interrupt it. So, Yeah. See, here in the States, the contracts are not legally binding either. Um, on the point of social service being the mediator... <laughs> Um, maybe in your country, but in the United States, I would not advocate for the social services to be the mediator. I would. Um, we have mediators. Like every county has mediators. You can bring anything to the table to mediate. And I would like. To, I would agree with something like that, or like have somebody specially trained in the field of adoption on you know both ends of the adoption and um, mediate, but I would not advocate here for social services. i sorry, but I have nothing good about our social services adoption system here. But like I said, the contracts aren't legally binding in the states either, which should be made known at the time of signing to, which I think I would imagine they are. And in the states right now, I don't know the statistics either, but the rate is a lot higher on open adoptions than closed. There's so much more open adoptions in the United States than there are closed. And um, sometimes it's at the insistence of the birth parent to be closed. But I know open adoption in the United States is the really the main way that adoption is being handled nowadays. It, excuse me if I ask, but uh, how does it work? If, if I think, for instance, of infant adoption, I had the feeling that uh, it's the birth mother or the birth, birth parents in the U.S. who can uh, limit the, uh, the choice of adoptive parents to just adoptive parents who are willing to go through an open adoption. Is that right? Do you think yes. this so this change is it pushed by the birth parents in a way this this changes social changes you yes. describe okay I think so what um nowadays like if you don't go through social services which social it's more now in the United States it's more adoption agencies it's not so much like in my day you had the choice of social services or Catholic charities there wasn't or if the Adoptive parents were rich enough. It could be done through a private lawyer. But nowadays in the States, it's more 
a major share are done by adoption agencies that, you know, people in business, that's their business. They make money and that's how, you know, and what they do is that the adoptive parents, the adoptive family make a file. Mostly it's videos and then they'll, you know, explain and tell about themselves and their lives. They, you know, take them around where they live and show them, like, their home and different aspects of their life. And they do the video, and then they also do papers work, you know, to tell about medical history and, you know, the legal paperwork. And then the birth parent is given as many as they want, profiles, and they go through the profiles of, say, 20 adoption, um, adoptive parents. And it is the birth parents that pick who they want their child to go to. Um, nobody else, birth parent, picks who they want their child to be placed with. And then it's you know, once they pick, they meet, and then that's when the discussion starts about open adoption, you know, where they start making the non-binding contract of, like, how many times a year would they visit, you know, monthly updates, monthly pictures, you know, whatever they decide is worked out between the adoptive family and the birth parent and the agency is the mediator. I see. But then does the agency, um, does, does it take any action in case the, uh, there's a disagreement in an open adoption later? Um, really sometimes they might, but it's very highly unlikely what they, their main job is is to um how do i want to say this they're listing the parents they're listing the parents to they're the matchmaker okay like, like the adoptive parents have to pay the agency to do their video to do all, like, their home inspection. Like, you have to go through home inspection. You have to go through psychological inspections. And the agency takes care of all of that. They mediate all of that. So, basically, the adoptive parents pay the agency. And then when a birth mother decides that she wants to place she would go through and decide which agency she would like to place you, which you have to do very with your head on your shoulders, your eyes wide open, because we have had some major instances in the States over the last couple of years where um, they take the money, then all of a sudden they're gone. So there's your money gone. Well, you might have invested $20,000, and that agency just closed the doors, and you don't have no idea where they are. And there went $20,000 that you just invested. It's gone. You know, your life savings could be gone, you know, and you don't have a baby. You know, or they promise you a baby, and there's just no baby, and your money is gone. So my one point is 
really, really investigate your agency. Do your work, investigate, and make sure when the time comes that you are signing with a reputable agency. That's a big thing. But right now, I'd say upwards of between 70 and 80 percent are all done through agencies. I see. Um, from a birth mother perspective, do you think this different system of, of having an agency uh, mediating between adoptive parents and birth parents, do you think it's better or than, than in, in your like 40 years ago when the social services instead were owning the case? Oh, I think it's so much better. It's I think it's oh, a thousand times better because nowadays a lot of the agencies offer aftercare for the birth mother. They have aftercare programs. You know, they they offer counseling. They offer counseling throughout the process. Um, I most definitely would have picked if given the choice, an agency over social services any day, mm-hmm. any day. I think an agency, if a person has decided to place, an agency is most definitely once you do your research. I mean, you really need to do your research. But I think an agency is most definitely the way to go in today's society. That it's so interesting to hear. I was, I was very curious about asking your perspective on this. Bridget, I think we should unfortunately close this conversation. I'm so grateful that you shared all your story. It was it was just so intense, probably the most intense interview I, I ever had so far. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. I, it's not an easy subject. <laughs> no, no, it, it never is. But this... I think you have a, a a very a great way to tell your story, and it's I I could sort of see it while you were telling, like like it was happening before my eyes. And well, thank you. Yeah, and I, I'm really so grateful that you share it with me uh, and and with my listeners. And I think there's a lot of good ref- points to reflect upon for everyone who could be listening, either uh, prospect birth moms or adoptive parents or adoptees. I think it's it's it was really interesting to hear. Well, thank you very much. All right. So, again, big thanks to Bridget and, and to all my listeners. Stay tuned for the next episode. And until next time, bye. for listening. Check out the notes of the episode to find and connect with my amazing guests. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and share it. Do you have an adoption story to share? Reach out at www.theelephantmum.com slash contact. Thank you.